Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Welcome to the Yale University Press Podcast. I'm Michael Hoke. Today, seeing as though we're right in the heart of the presidential election, it's a perfect time to talk about the heart of another cornerstone of American politics, the Declaration of Independence. I'm joined by Steve Pincus, history professor here at Yale and author of The Heart of the Declaration, The Founder's Case for an Activist Government, who makes the case that we may be looking at this thing all wrong. Thanks for joining us today, Steve. Thank you. So historically, the Declaration of Independence has been seen as a call for limited government. And in fact, that interpretation is still embraced today. However, you argue that beyond the opening paragraphs, the Declaration is actually a laundry list of ways the British government did too little to promote prosperity in the Americas. In other words, is the Declaration actually a call for a more hands-on government that has its citizens' best interests in mind? Absolutely. The Declaration, uh, the founders complained rather vociferously that the British government, since the accession of George III in 1760, had cut back in the ways that they had helped the, uh, to promote the development of, of the American colonies and indeed the West Indian colonies uh, and the British Empire in general. So uh, the declaration, the founders complained, for example, that uh, up until the sev- early 1760s, the British government had heavily subsidized immigration into British North America, and that came to a grinding halt with the accession of George III. They also complained that up until uh, the 1760s that patriot uh, governments in Britain had helped to support colonial trade with Spanish America and with French America. And this was absolutely vital for uh, for British North Americans because for, for two reasons. One is that uh, there was immense demand in Spanish America and in the French Caribbean for uh, uh, North American agricultural products, but it was also absolutely essential to be able to trade with Spanish America to get currency, to get specie into North America. So we forget that uh, before the American Revolution, the coin that was most often traded in British America were uh, Spanish pieces of eight. Um, and it was only through trade with Spanish America that it was possible to get that currency. So when when uh, the British governments after 1763 stopped trade with Spanish America and French America, there simply was a shortage of coin uh, in British North America. Um, So this was one of the vital complaints. And in the declaration, the founders complained that the British government had had put an end to such trade. Um, um, And more generally, um, the the founders complained that the that the British government had stopped to support uh, the growth of of commerce and agricultural development uh, in British uh, in British North America, and in particular, and this was more obliquely, they complained that the British government uh, was uh, while colonial governments had sought to put an end to the slave trade because slaves didn't make very good consumers of British products. Um, the British government uh, had vetoed such legislation and were therefore supporting slavery in the slave trade. And from the perspective of British North Americans, this was a disaster because they believed, as did most Enlightenment thinkers, that um, it was necessary to become a civilized society. It was necessary to put, around, uh, put an end to slavery because slave societies were typical of pri- were, were the typical economic organization of primitive societies. Yeah, interesting. I mean, yeah, that seems to follow the sort of John Locke model of the relationship between uh, production and consumerism. And as you said, slaves didn't make very good consumers. Um, So it's very interesting to hear that 
sort of argument against slavery, it's a different argument than maybe we hear today, um, but it was very relevant at the time. No, absolutely. And, and my point is, uh, in general, in the discussion of slavery, is that the moral arguments against slavery are fairly obvious and had been announced from time out of mind. Um, but they weren't winning arguments, uh, by and large, in the 17th and early 18th centuries. It was when uh, British North Americans uh, and uh, Britons in general, and indeed Europeans, began to see slave societies and slave economies as primitive economies and preventing uh, development and leading inevitably to oligarchy that the critique of slavery took a real bite. So the economic argument, I think, is what shifted uh, the balance. And it's really important. And, you know, some historians of abolitionism have pointed out that uh, there was a real movement for abolition in British North America that took had a real bite in the 1760, late 1760s and 1770s um, that, that sort of came to an end as a result of the Revolutionary War. But it was precocious. It was much more powerful and earlier uh, than the British abolitionist movement that really took, uh, took wing after the American Revolutionary War. I think it's also interesting because, you know, to some extent, this seems to pave the way for maybe our relationship with the economy now and consumerism in that these moral arguments don't always take root, but as once it becomes an economic argument, it suddenly sees a lot more traction. Right. And this is, I mean, so, so, so at the heart of the book um, is an argument that, um, that the economic arguments of the 18th century were very similar to our economic arguments today. On the one hand, one has the British ministry, which places almost exclusive evidence, uh, emphasis on production, on economies of production. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and the patriots on both sides of the Atlantic argued that production is all well and good, but you need consumers to buy the products that you're making. And it was the creative interplay between producers and consumers which led to uh, potentially infinite economic growth. So at the heart, the Declaration of Independence was a pro-consumerist document. And going back to this idea of the patriots, which you've mentioned and is a big part of your book, um, who exactly were the patriots and what was what would you say their their contribution to the overall theme of the Declaration of Independence was? Right. Well, so let me first of all say we we tend in sort of the popular imagination to have too narrow a conception of patriots and patriotism. On the one hand, when we refer to patriots in, in everyday conversation today, we think of patriots as anybody who's a nationalist. Um, uh, but in the 18th century, it had a much more specific meaning. And in 18th century historiography, when people refer to the patriots, they're referring to those in British North America who wanted independence. Um, that's correct, but it's far too narrow of you. And what I try to suggest in the book is that the patriots were a transatlantic political party, and the full meaning of the term political party, with political organization as well as a set of political ideas. Um, And patriots, uh, there were patriots in England, there were patriots in Scotland, there were patriots in Ireland, there were patriots uh, in British North America, there were patriots in the West Indies, and there were even patriots in British India. Um, And so who, who were these patriots? These were people who accepted the fact that in the 18th century, uh, the British government had built up a large sovereign debt, um, and they wanted a way to pay down the debt. But unlike the ministerialists, unlike the people in power in the 1760s and 1770s in Britain, who thought the best way to pay down the debt was to pursue austerity measures, to cut back on spending, um, and to shift the tax burden away from England uh, onto the colonies, onto Scotland and Ireland, um, 
the patriots believed that the best way to pay down the debt was to stimulate economic growth. So, and in their view, the most dynamic part of the British imperial economy were the colonies. So the thing that made the least sense in their view was to tax the colonies directly. What the best thing to do was to support immigration, support growth, dem uh, demographic growth in the colonies, um, to, uh, uh, to provide bounties to support uh, economic development, not to do things like um, pass the Stamp Act uh, or pass uh, the, the famous Townsend duties, which taxed uh, American consumption. Yeah, and I think even uh, in the book you mentioned that when George Washington read the Declaration, he saw it as fighting uh, for his and many other patriots' interpretation of the British Constitution, uh, which he felt had been corrupted by British politicians under King George III. Um, and in fact, he seemed to think that things had been going pretty well up until 1760. Um, was this viewpoint a common one during the Revolution throughout? Um, and at what point did it become a fight for actual independence from Britain rather than a hope to have Britain govern the colonies fairly? Right. Well, that's, I mean, that's an absolutely uh, central point. So there's, I mean, I just want to sort of point out the incredible irony. So uh, when the British Redcoats are disembarking in Sta on Staten Island, uh, 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 George Washington with his troops uh, in uh, northern Manhattan, reads the declaration to the troops, and then comments that uh, the declaration proves that he and his troops are fighting in defense of the British Constitution against the British Army. Um, so that requires a lot of unpacking, and that uh, depends on Washington's interpretation of the British Constitution. Um, and his view very much was that the move towards austerity measures the, the, uh, that the British government had taken beginning in the early 1760s was an abnegation of what the British Constitution, the British Imperial Constitution was. So in his view, um, and the view of many uh, patriots in British America, as well as in Britain, uh, as, uh, and again, in the West Indies as well, was that the proper understanding of the British Constitution involved supporting the growth of, of the colonies. So in his view, there had been a party takeover by a conservative government and a conservative party in Britain. And the key thing, at least in the 1760s, um, as far as British North Americans was concerned, was to cause the fall of that party and the return to power of patriots, uh, uh, British patriots. So. Um, in the late 1760s and 1770s, the famous non-importation agreements and non-exportation agreements, which are frequently seen as a precursor to independence, were explicitly designed to put economic pressure on Britain and lead to the fall of the British government. They wanted a new kind of prime minister. And it was only in 1774 and 1775 that the majority of patriots began to see independence as the second best option. They thought it was unlikely that they were going to be able to bring down the uh, bring down uh, the British government but for many this was always the second second best option now there were others I'm sure like Samuel Adams in Boston who were was precocious in wanting independence but even Adams during the stamp back crisis was hoping for imperial reform rather than independence I, I think it's you know I always love to talk about these things because you see sort of parallels you know, even today, and you, you see people on the side that are maybe hoping for a more reasoned approach, if that's the right word. And then there's always the side that kind of just wants to go for it and burn it all down. And it's, it's interesting to hear that sort of debate going on. When they realized that 
probably they weren't going to cause the the fall of this government and put in a patriot government. Was it a disappointment for people like Washington? Were they were they st- were, had they held out hope that it would continue and they would be conti- remain part of Britain? Or uh, you know how did they handle oh, that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, until until very late in the day. I mean, it, it's important to realize how deeply and profoundly. Anglophilic most British Americans were. Um, they uh, uh, they ate their meals using uh, silverware mostly produced in Britain. Uh, they uh, walked on carpets imported uh, from various uh, British uh, British companies. Um, they uh, uh, mostly wore clothing fabric, you know, made in places like Manchester. It was a they were it was a deeply they were deeply and profoundly Anglophilic uh, uh, people. Um, and indeed, many uh, commentators in on both sides of the Atlantic in the 1770s noted the irony that no part of the British Empire was more loyal and was more profoundly Anglophilic than were the British Americans in 1760. So, uh, so yes, I mean, it was a very painful transition. And I think it's important to remember that after the revolution, uh, this kind of Anglophilia continued. It was a uh, um, uh, Britain remained uh, uh, in the independent United States' largest trading partner after the revolution. Um, and when somebody like Ezra Stiles, the president of, of Yale College uh, during the revolution, founded the Connecticut Abolition Society, he sought deep ties with Britain. So there wasn't, uh, the cultural break never really happened. So it was very painful uh, uh, to enunciate this this political break. break. They really thought uh, most British American patriots thought that Britain would soon come to its senses and would uh, return to what they saw as the enlightened imperial policies of the 1750s, uh, of the 1740s and 1750s, and it was a profound disappointment uh, that that this didn't happen. And in fact, uh, going back to this idea of how closely tied they were, even Washington's home, Mount Vernon, is named for a patriot admiral who was British. Uh, and a hero in 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 both sides of the Atlantic, really. Um, what was that? What was the relationship there? What was their relationship? Right. So I start the book. I mean, the first chapter of the book after the introduction is is to sort of point out that people. I mean, th- you know, thousands, tens of thousands of people uh, visit Mount Vernon every year, and nobody ever thinks about why it's called Vernon after. Uh, <laughs> and Vernon was uh, a British admiral, uh, Edward Vernon, uh, who was. Uh, a patriot, uh, politically a patriot. Um, so he was the son of somebody who had taken up arms in the revolution of 1688-89. He'd made his name in Parliament in the 1720s and 1730s, criticizing um, the the then Prime Minister Robert Walpole from a patriot perspective. He was invariably described as a patriot. Um, and uh, Lawrence Washington, uh, uh, George Washington's older half-brother, uh, had served with Admiral Vernon in one of the great naval disasters, British naval disasters of the, of the 18th century, where the British attempted uh, with uh, a huge number of American, North American volunteers uh, on the fleet uh, to take uh, Cartagena in what is now uh, Colombia with huge numbers of people dying. So the great irony is Lawrence Washington comes back after what was an extremely painful military disaster and still 
calls his and names his ancestral home after Edward Vernon. And the point that I try to make is that the reason for Washington's love of Vernon uh, was, you know, in part that he was this naval hero, but he participated in this naval disaster. It was more because of his ideas. And Vernon, Edward Vernon, and his older brother, James Vernon, who was one of the trustees and founders of Georgia, was co were committed to this Patriot program. So it's important to remember that Georgia, the first law of Georgia, outlawed slavery. Um, uh, uh, it was uh, Georgia was a colony that was based on subsidized immigration uh, from Britain in some parts, but also Italians, uh, uh, Germans, Swiss people all came uh, to Georgia, paid for uh, by by the British government. Mm -hmm. um, and it was I mean it was very much no, an idea that the British government needed to subsidize the beginning of the colony. These were the ideas that Lawrence Washington. Uh, imbibed, and this is what he celebrated, and, and it's these ideas that were passed down to, to George, and he, um, uh, George Washington remains in contact throughout, throughout his life, really, with a series of British patriots, um, and during the Stamp Act crisis, he enunciates almost exactly the same political economic ideas in his correspondence with, uh, with London-based merchants. Hmm. Now, changing tact a little bit here, I, I think many would argue that the time when the Declaration was written is vastly different from modern times. We have this sort of, uh, I guess it's a human nature to view past as, as, as you know, the opposite of progress. We're making progress constantly. Um, and it, but it seems that in general, uh, some of the problems of the past are the problems of today. Uh, the economic effects of immigration, obviously that's a topic right now, uh, the economic status of African Americans, how the government can encourage economic growth. With this in mind, is there a benefit or a danger to, in continuing to draw from a document written nearly 250 years ago? Uh, well, I think it's important. I mean, let me sort of frame this more broadly. I mean, I think, um, uh, and this is something that I've been arguing for a while in a number of publications, mm -hmm. is that... Uh, in the late 17th century the, and over the course of the 18th century, there was the development of modern polities, modern states with modern problems. So um, the beginning of uh, debates over the dangers and benefits of sovereign debt, that was an 18th century problem. Mm -hmm. um, uh, 18th century states, uh, fun, late 17th and 18th century states fundamentally um, argued over immigration policy. So one of one of the sort of uh, John Locke's uh, most widely disseminated manuscripts uh, in the 1690s was an argument in favor of immigration against uh, uh, anti-immigrant groups. And the arguments for and against immigration haven't changed very much. Um, so I do think it's 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 not anachronistic at all to say that this that the Declaration of Independence was a very modern document. Mm -hmm. um, I also think it is a necessary resource for us today. Um, now, um, it's usually been claimed uh, that you know people who want to look to the founding documents are people who have a conservative sort of political outlook, um, and it strikes me that that's not necessarily the case. That in in many ways it's important to think about our founding documents as a kind of contract between the state and the people, just as I think Britons might turn to the Magna Carta, an even older document, uh, as outlining a certain sets of rights, and just like uh, uh, still people in in France today look to documents during the French Revolution sort of outlawing the, outlining their contract. Now, certain things have changed, absolutely. But the fundamental issues that were being debated in the, uh, in the third quarter of the 18th century were whether or not uh, uh, the sovereign debt could 
best be paid down by uh, by government becoming smaller and not spending money, or whether it was better for the government to stimulate the economy. Uh, arguments in the 18th century were fundamentally about whether it was better to invite immigrants into the country so that they should bring their skills, or whether bringing immigrants into the country would dilute the culture, the national culture, and whether bringing in, uh, in immigrants into the country would take jobs away from those who were already there. Um, and again, uh, the arguments about, um, about slavery, uh, which are implicit in the Declaration, were arguments largely about uh, the relationship between uh, an underclass, if you will, um, and the possibility of, of economic development. So I think many of these arguments are directly relevant today. And I would suggest that people across the political spectrum in North America need to return to the Declaration of Independence. Um, and uh, both because what's what's been highlighted by some really terrific work by political philosophers, both because of its commitment to egalitarianism, but also because in the Declaration um, there was an argument that uh, that was advanced that you could not have uh, social equality with some without some degree of political economic equality, and it's the political economic argument that I think the second two thirds of the Declaration highlights. Yeah, and I, I mean you bring up a very interesting point. I think. Uh, today, often the founding fathers are treated treated as sort of this hive mind. They all wanted the same thing, and you know maybe in general that was true. But they certainly, as you said, argued about the same things we're arguing about today. Um, so, what do what do politicians who are drawing from the Declaration? What do they have right and what do they have wrong about it in their arguments today? Right. Well, so um, I mean, my sense is that. Uh, Modern politicians were much are much less good readers of the Declaration than nineteenth century politicians. Uh, I mean, I I I was struck. I'm constantly struck by how sophisticated Abraham Lincoln was in reading the Declaration of Independence, but also somebody like John Quincy Adams, who gave innumerable speeches about the Declaration of Independence. Mm -hmm. um, they both emphasized uh, uh, its foundational nature, that is to say it's our first constitutional document, that the Constitution is not, by no means the first constitutional document. Um, but also um, they understood uh, a lot about these kind of political economic arguments and the, the role that the state could play in promoting the development of, of uh, well, uh, in the case of the Declaration, the development of these former colonies in the case of somebody like Lincoln of, of, of the Union. Um, so I think, uh, for example, um, well, I'll give you one, one, uh, one good example. Um, uh, recently in, in, in this election, uh, a number of politicians have claimed that the founders were uh, opposed to free trade. Mm -hmm. um, and in some ways, that's right. They they understood that free that markets couldn't exist on their own, but they absolutely wanted freer trade than what existed. They wanted the state to be involved in opening up markets for uh, for British Americans. They didn't want, in the first instance, uh, uh, to create. Um, tra uh, trade wars or tariff wars in one form or another, which is why um, when the Declaration of Independence, the resolutions were passed to uh, to move forward with the Declaration of Independence, at the same time a resolution was passed to, to draw up what was to become the model commercial treaty, which were bilateral free trade agreements. So that I think politicians have got wrong. Mm -hmm. I also think politicians have got wrong the notion that from the beginning uh, we, North Americans, were anti-immigrant. I mean, I think it's quite explicit that the uh, founders thought it was really 
important to bring new people uh, into America. Now, of course, it's true that in uh, in the late 1780s and early 1790s there was there was profound anti-immigrant sentiment, um, but. Uh, we shouldn't read those sentiments uh, into what happened, you know, a decade and a half earlier. Um, that would be like trying to interpret, uh, you know, Obama, the Obama administration from the perspective of ideas during the Reagan administration. And we just right. don't tend to do that. Um, right. So we need to read history forward. And I think that that's something which we've tended to get wrong as well. But in general, I think, uh, I mean, you see ubiquitously and here, I mean, let me just make an uh, obvious observation. On every single Tea Party website that I know of, mm -hmm. um, the Declaration of Independence is posted without comment um, as evidence that the founders were in favor of small government. And yet, the, the last two paragraphs of the Declaration are about creating a state which can no negotiate commercial treaties, which can negotiate all sorts of things. And indeed, it was that statement, was a single statement uh, clause of the de Declaration, which John Adams celebrated when he uh, wrote to his wife Abigail saying, you know, we've done this great thing. We're going to change the world with this Declaration of Independence. That is to say, the founders understood uh, the Declaration of Independence as something creating a new kind of state, or at least uh, a state modeled on patriot principles that had ceased to exist in Britain. So they very much saw it as a pro-state document, whereas the Tea Party um, and politicians who, um, who sing from their hymn book um, misinterpreted it as a, as a call for small government. Yeah, I mean, the Founding Fathers and the people around them have left behind treasure troves of letters and other documents that sort of you know, bolster or act as a, as a, a way of filtering what exactly this one document became. And so these things are out there, um, right. but often, you you know, it's easier to sort of tout this one document and say, this exists in a vacuum and it says what I want it to say. No, that's absolutely right. And, you know, I mean, the problem that, uh, that I suppose historians are always faced with is that uh, um, seminal documents like the Declaration of Independence, like Magna Carta, um, they're we can always find somebody to read it in the way um, that we want to read it for our political reasons, uh, mm -hmm. for our political agenda. Um, so we tend, or uh, modern politicians tend to cherry pick those interpretations. And what I've tried to do um, is to establish um, a broader context for understanding the Declaration of Independence. That is to say, I think uh, North American or early American historians for a long time have looked at some of these documents as correspondence among the founders. But what they haven't seen and what they haven't studied is that this was part of a larger pan-imperial debate. So they haven't drawn on the resources uh, uh, and interpretive materials available by looking at the British side of the debate mm. uh, nearly as much and to realize that there were patriots in Britain uh, advancing some of these arguments as well. So just to take uh, uh, one example. Um, the Bishop of St. Asaph um, uh, in the House of Lords gave a speech um, condemning the policies of Lord North. Um, it was a speech that uh, was controversial in Britain. It was printed in Britain. Um, but the fullest copy of that speech that we have, printed copy of that speech, was printed in Providence, uh, Rhode Island. Um, and an excerpt from that speech was printed approvingly in every single North American and West Indian newspaper that I found today. So mm -hmm. they saw this as a fundamental document for the Patriot uh, position, even though it was a, a speech delivered by an Anglican bishop who had never set foot in North America. Hmm. Um, and so 
Are there any lessons for those of us who, you know, may not have studied these things closely, but are paying close attention to the current election cycle? Um, Are there any lessons here for us or are there any lessons here for maybe some of the politicians running in the election cycle? Yeah. I mean, I think I think uh, uh, there are several lessons. I mean, one is that. Uh, some of the fundamental arguments which are being addressed in this election cycle about immigration, about the size of the state, about uh, what kind of taxation to, uh, to be uh, to pursue, uh, about, uh, uh, well, racial issues, although they didn't see these in racial issues, but about the problems having to do with the legacies of slavery. These were issues which the founders absolutely addressed. They are not new issues. Um, and it's important to, for us to understand that um, the founders and America's founding document took came down very hard in favor of the state playing a creative role to promote economic growth. They came down very hard in support of immigration. And, you know, uh, they would have thought the idea of building a wall is completely anathema to their sort of ideas. That's exactly what they thought George III was trying to do, and they were trying to get away from that. They also believe fundamentally that uh, it, uh, creating an underclass uh, like slavery led to oligarchy and led to bad decision-making. Um, and they also fundamentally believe that the state needed to play a role in opening up markets rather than closing markets uh, uh, to promote economic development. So all of those issues, I think, are, you know, are absolutely salient today. And I think there are a lot of lessons that could be taken from that. And I think, uh, I think both sides should be referring much more closely to, to these arguments that were around uh, during the Declaration. And, and uh, one should be very careful in just blithely asserting that the founders were in favor of small government, which seems to be uh, coming back in. All right. Well, thank you very much, Steve. Um, The book is The Heart of the Declaration, The Founder's Case for an Activist Government. It's available in bookstores. And that does it for this episode of the Yale University Press podcast. Thank you for listening. And please visit us online at www.yalebooks.com to keep up with this podcast, as well as the latest from our blog and our authors. Talk to you next time.